Do you know where the origin of the term jumping the shark came from? Does it have something to do with like an inflatable pool uh, float of some sort? It actually has a, a much more interesting, although trivial, backstory. Jumping the shark was actually coined in 1985 in response to a 1977 episode of Happy Days. Wow. Okay, this goes back further than uh, the internet. This is the episode in which Fonzie jumps over a shark while on water skis. I didn't realize there was actually a shark in Happy Days at any point. The phrase really means that a creative work or outlet appears to be making a stunt that is seemingly ridiculous. I feel like this is uh, similar to when the alien or the Martian or whatever came to the Dukes of Hazard. Like, I feel like that's where we are. Oh, I'm going to just start saying it. Martians and moonshine. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 317. That's Chris Boyer, and I am Reed Smith. Hey! <laughs> is that the first Happy Days reference on the show? I'm not sure. It may be. I think it is. <laughs> and for those of there's some people listening that may not know that that was my Fonzie invitation there. Well, uh, for those that have not seen Happy Days, well, no, I don't know. Maybe that's my recommendation for today is to go watch that episode. Uh, you have to stick around. Stick around to find out. Uh, but before then, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is where you can go to learn more about our show, previous episodes, all that kind of fun stuff, as well as sign up for the TPS report. You may be asking yourself, what is the TPS report? Well, it is an email, comes out every Monday morning with five articles to start your week. And that's it. That's all we use it for. That's all we plan to use it for. But but literally, you'll get an email on Mondays, five articles that we find interesting that might be uh, something that would be useful to know about or something about the industry or technically kind of fits into this world of marketing, communications, digital innovation, all that kind of fun stuff. So we'll pause here for just a second. Again, touchpoint.health, pop over there on whatever digital device that you're on, sign up for the TPS report, and then join us back for today's episode. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint. 
where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. It's only a matter of time, Reed. We had an episode about AI a couple of episodes ago, right? And we talked about how it's we have need to get real talking about it. Well, today we're going to get real talking about it because I don't know. Everywhere I turn, AI is discussed everywhere with ChatGPT and Dolly and turn on Instagram. And I'm seeing all these people posting stuff of like AI generated art and it's everywhere. It's all over the news. Real talk. Was that like a Mike Myers skit on live? <laughs> I, I do feel like it's becoming real. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is uh, outside of this idea of just like uh, chat bots or something that we've associated it with historically that have all been good use cases. But now to your point, the chat GPT piece is coming up all the time. I mean, the last several weeks, especially... I can't make it through a day without somebody emailing about something relative to it or talking about something funny that they used it for to create or man, this wild or, or something like that. To the point, got on LinkedIn just a bit ago and uh, Tim Stewart, colleague of mine, when I was at Girard, he is still there, super smart guy, works with a lot of the academic systems around the country. We've actually had him on the show a time or two. Posted the link to an article and uh, just in and of itself, the fact that it is in Fortune. Is there still a Fortune magazine or is this just a website now? I think it's just a website now. I mean, is there is anything a magazine anymore? I don't know. I really am not sure. I mean, what (laughs) else do you put your glass on on the table, though? Like you've got to have some. It's like a coaster, basically. But Fortune, <laughs> this article in Fortune.com uh, called Once the quote-unquote intellectual blue banks of the rich and powerful, can speech writers be replaced with chat GPT? So here it is, and we're talking about chat GPT yet again in something that is uh, highbrow, if you will, as Fortune, um, talking about replacing speech writers. And again, I'm not I'm not claiming that it will or it won't or whatever. I think it's just interesting that we're we're getting to this place that it's really starting to get grounded where people are saying, why not? I guess. <laughs> you know, like what what why, why not? Well, even even the Coursera's CEO, Jeff Magianokolda, I don't know if I said that right, he actually said that he uses Chat GPT as a writing assistant and a thought partner. Can you believe that? He says that he actually adds that the that the program writes speeches for him in a friendly, upbeat, authoritative tone with mixed cadence. It's almost like we're humanizing this thing too much. It feels weird. A call out in here, which I think this is what's really fascinating about it, is it's, you know, they talk about the fact that it's not so much the extent that chat GPT is technology and technology that works, right? Like mechanically it does what it does. Mm-hmm. But will it or will it not replace corporate communications? But it has to do with more the motivation of corporate communications. Like, what are the, what are you trying to do? And I think that kind of gets to the crux of some of this. Do you want to call out that particular quote in this article that just made made both of our heads turn? Yeah, yeah. So towards the end of this article, which again we'll link to, they kind of end the article somewhat with this statement of. How much of the volume of corporate communications is a sincere attempt 
at commun to communicate strategies, build culture, and create a human connection between the organization's leaders and its stakeholders, question mark, and how much of it is just filling a vacuum with corporate noise? <laughs> Again, like how much of it is, are you really trying to be quote unquote authentic and how much of it is just, well, we've got to fill this email or piece of communications that's going out. We got to send a newsletter this week about something. But, you know, in all honesty, right, AI and machine learning is already in there on the journalism front and writing stories. I hear things all the time, Reed, from people that we know in the industry that are writers that are kind of wondering how can we start to use ChatGPT and other things in helping to write blog copies and helping to write web copy, et cetera. And another article that we found that's called Who Needs Journalists When You Can Get Chat GPT to Do All the Work? And a great <laughs> website, by the way, uh, daysdigital.com. If you haven't gone to that website, you should. Really good articles. But they kind of highlight the fact that AI writing is already there. And the article says last month, they uh, the Dazed asked the chat GPT whether it's going to take the job as writers. And ChatGPT reassured them, as a language model, I'm not capable of taking anyone's jobs. But cut to two, literally two weeks later, when an artificial intelligence produced by ChatGPT parent company OpenAI was hired by BuzzFeed, where it's going to be put to work on the media company's content and quizzes. If you've ever taken a, a BuzzFeed quiz, I can that makes sense. But I mean, now they're hiring... AI to write content. Well, according to this article, they're not alone. Uh, they call out a greeting card company, uh, Moonpig, which is great <laughs> in and of itself. It, it says in here that they're trialing it to generate customized messages, which they say, how romantic. <laughs> in January, it was revealed that the tech website CNET has been using it. Well, maybe not yet, but an undisclosed AI tool, they say, to write articles for months. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, there's that. I, I guess it's almost just a really sophisticated search engine to some extent, right? If you're just trying to educate yourself, you just like ask it things and it just returns a whole descriptor about it. Is it really that powerful, though, Reed? I mean, you and I have played around with it. I, I would characterize it as a glorified party trick right now because it, it, while it does some interesting stuff, we, I think we even did a whole cold open where it was a Western cold open that ChatGPT wrote for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that can it actually be used in a realistic way? I have to say, though, that I just wanted to test the limits of it, right? I, I went out there and I said, hey, ChatGPT, take this web page content and this web page content and rewrite it together into one web page content. Now, ChatGPT came back and said, I'm afraid I can't search the web for you and do this. I think they put up those guardrails. I'm sure it could have done it. Right. But then on the next hand, I put in web copy and I said, you know, rewrite this with best SEO practices. And sure enough, it did. It took all of the algorithms about SEO from Google, I, I would imagine, and it rewrote the web copy for me. And I was like, there are some actual applications here. I mean, I saw a, a, an image the other day and it was three or four people in this image. And the caption was, none of these people are real. Like this is an, you know, a, a generated, an AI generated image. 
And I kind of paused for a second because at first it's super creepy. You're like, wait a minute. So these aren't real people. You know, they were like, I don't know, early professional age. You know, it's probably in their 20s or something like that. And you're just looking at this image thinking, this isn't real. Like the situation's not real. Where they are is not real. The people aren't real. To your point, you say like, okay, well, this is a real use case for this. I'll use it, you know, instead of stock photography, let's say. So here's a real, you know, non-party trick, right? Like I can use this for my websites or whatever to create exactly what I need. But then on the flip side, I say, well, can I just do that with stock photography though? So, I mean, is it really accomplishing anything that I couldn't have done otherwise? I, I guess to some extent, I mean, you're creating a unique image that no one else can use. So that's an upside, right? I guess. Can you do something that you couldn't do before? Yes. Is that valuable? I think so. Maybe. Kind of. Let's end with uh, this article that we're linking to in the show notes. They actually went back to ChatGPT and they asked it. <laughs> Can you really replace human writers, journalists, creators of content and automate journalism? And this is what ChatGPT said back to, to them. It said, quote, I cannot speak to the specific decisions made by BuzzFeed regarding their use of AI and its impact on their workforce. But it did say it's a common concern in many industries that the increasing use of AI and automation could lead to job loss for human workers. And it's important for companies to consider the ethical implications of AI adoption and take proactive steps to ensure that workers are protected and their rights and well-being are respected. An AI machine told us that. (laughs) (laughs) Taking over the world. Taking over the world. Well, in more ways than one, let's take a pause and we'll come back and let's talk about some ways that we're actually using AI right now in our digital marketing space, because it's been there, right? We've been using it for a while. And then there's a really great interview later on in the show that we're going to get to. So stay tuned after this break and we'll be back to talk a little bit more about AI. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right. So AI, we've talked a lot about it. Like I said earlier, it's been the focus of a number of episodes over the years. We've talked about how it's it's changing you know, kind of what we're thinking about and kind of even our lexicon on a daily basis because of most prominently chat GPT here in recent months, if you will. But how is it practically changing what we do? We, me, you, you know, kind of this hospital, healthcare, marketing, communications, innovation world. And just like CNET has been using AI for a number of months without telling anybody, we've been using AI for a number of years already. Uh-oh. So 
our good friends at Forbes have an article yeah. that we're linking to in the show note about how AI is transforming the future of digital marketing. And I think we've covered some of these use cases before, but let's let's address them again. One of the ways AI is being used in, in digital marketing, targeting. We've done a lot of efforts around targeting, building propensity models and looking at particular audiences, creating lookalike groups and all of these other things. AI has been at the center of that for a very long time. And in fact, two companies that they highlight, Amazon and Google and Facebook, maybe three companies, I guess, are connecting their recommendation engine technology to their targeted advertising platforms. And basically what that has become have been these supercharged, augmented machine learning platforms that become increasingly effective at taking data and creating customer profiles and assigning them to their buying habits. And that's been going on for years now. I mean, I can see that. I I mean, just the idea from a targeting perspective, right? The more data you have. I mean, AI machine learning works really well when there's a lot of data to ingest, like at a high level. So if you think about all the targeting parameters that you could possibly imagine and being able to ingest all that, then certainly this becomes a way to make things more relevant and focused, I guess, for folks. And next on the list, content marketing. Again, you can just do away with all writers at this point. <laughs> but they talk in here first and foremost about social media marketing. I, you know, social is probably what's really driven a lot of this on, on the content side, right? It's this need to generate you know, even websites is somewhat static to some extent, right? So this is where kind of the rise in, in content came in. Generating content just for the sake of generating content, referring back to the initial article we talked about, and doing it in a way that's very highly personalized. So I have seen on some social platforms where, well, some platforms that connect to your social platforms that could take a piece of content and you ingest all these different personas and it will redo your content on these social platforms based on those audiences, even to the point of changing the way the headlines are written or the images on that particular post are to make them very much personalized and creating that information so that it'll make much more of an effective marketing message, so to speak. Again, you can do it with all writers, I think. Well, I guess we're getting into the creatives now too, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, I mean, the ability to kind of create images of people that, uh, you know, don't exist. It's kind of wild. So, but from a targeting perspective and then from a content and and kind of paid perspective, like this all makes sense because a lot of this is algorithm driven. So again, I can kind of get there mentally. It's not a huge leap. Another article we found talks about machine learning in digital advertising. Okay. Machine learning is very much, sometimes when we talk about AI, we're actually talking about machine learning. That's right. Machine learning in advertising has been there for a while And they outline a couple of of ways that machine learning is being used. First of all, it could process a great amount of data to get insights on who your audiences are, as we've discussed, right? And improving ad creative, contextual relevance, targeting, and even bidding. These are all things that can kind of come together to help you with it from a digital marketing perspective, create more effective advertising. And I will tell you that if you use Google AdWords, if you use Facebook ad marketplaces, they have machine learning built into these tools. That's how they develop these personas. That's how they tell you about 
optimal spend. They help you pick out the keywords. Do you remember the good old days, Reed, when we were picking out keywords by ourselves? When we would have to load in our list of 100 keywords into the ad platforms? They don't do that anymore. No. That was back when you had to know how to spell atrial fibrillation. (laughs) Yes. So, and again, a lot of this just programming, math, science, algorithms, things like that make sense to me, like that logic, right? The things like bidding more strategically or, you know, ability to, you know, boost, you know, relevance and things like that. I can get there. Like, I, I get that. The content stuff is what kind of blows my mind, you know, out of all of these things. Do you think that using this kind of content and creating the content, creating the creative, the writing and all that is, as what ChatGPT warned us, is that an ethical use of AI adoption? Mm. I mean, that's a good question, because even if you think about the images that are created, is pulling that from somewhere, right? Like, I understand that, like, that imagery does not exist in that state anywhere. However, it's pulling parts and pieces, you know, and, and so it's like, how do you credit that back? What does that do to artists out there? Yeah, And I think that's where some of the ethical stuff comes in, too. It's just like, where is it pulling, for lack of a better word, inspiration from? I hear you on that, for sure. Absolutely. Um, Why don't you talk about how AI is being used with CRMs, Reed? You know, CRM is an interesting one because natively that's what you're talking about, which is targeting to some extent. So I can imagine... We were already doing this to some degree by ingesting information and then using that to more, uh, you know, precisely engage outside of what we could have done on our own. You know, and there's an article that we'll we'll link to here from crmswitch.com, but they call out things like, you know, lead scoring or forecasting, recommendations, natural language search, you know, stuff like that. Forecasting, I think, is the most interesting one to me. If you start looking at where we, you know, we've ingested all this information and now we're starting to be predictive about things, now that becomes very valuable if you can understand not just from a marketing standpoint, but from an operations standpoint, they're able to use this information to make decisions off of going forward. So let's take inventory here, Reed. We talked about writing. We talked about content creation. We talked about advertising. We talked about CRM, marketing automation is kind of built into that too with CRM. We talked about social media. What other part of like a traditional digital marketing world that we haven't talked about yet with AI? Web design. Uh-oh. Guess what? It's there too. Do away with all your developers and designers. You heard it here first. <laughs> we found another article. That talks about how it's actually, it's a LinkedIn article and it asks, will AI take over web design? And it says right away, there's a good chance you've created an automated website using AI already. Many designers, oh, get ready. Here's the three letter acronym quote. Are you ready for this? These days, many designers are using deep learning techniques like convolutional neural networks or CNNs. or recurrent neural networks, RNNs, as part of their workflow. And some even go so far as incorporating generative adversarial networks, or GANs, G-A-Ns, into their workflows, wherever possible. Oh, man, I, I cannot wait to use this in a meeting. This is great. <laughs> I, I, I am so looking forward to working in recurrent neural networks. 
Um, that, that is going to be the best. And I'm just going <laughs> to say like everybody should know what that is. <laughs> what they say in here that, that, you know, over the past few years alone, automated website designs has been used by companies like Google, Microsoft, et cetera, to create websites for their clients. So, you know, they're, they're using AI technology, calling out here is deep learning to actually do that. So the truth about web design, they say, is it's a creative process and no amount of AI can replace human creativity. I think that's an interesting one, the human creativity call out here. Yeah. Because a lot of the creativity is what the input is on like chat GPT, for example. There still has to be an input at some point. Yeah. We're not yet at the point where... AI is inputting onto itself, although there are some AI platforms that do that. There still is that creative outside input, the human input. And I think that's the big point here, Reed, right? Is that AI is never going to be able to fully know what we as marketers, what we need to accomplish, be it design, be it CRM strategies, be it marketing strategies, be it creative copywriting, journalism, or or anything like that, right? Humans still need to be a critical part of this. We're not at the singularity yet, where machines are just taking over. We might be closer, but we're not quite there yet. Like, I feel like this is always going to be out in front. You know what I'm saying? Like, it from a trending perspective, it's like, I don't know that you ever catch up. It's kind of like building a website, like you're never really done. And it's an iterative process. So we're always going to have if this technology built upon itself or we're able to, you know, put in motion things that will continue to learn and become smarter and smarter. I mean, we just got to figure out how that how that fits into and amplifies what it is that we do. It's this is an and not an or uh, thing. Right. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, maybe another way to put it is. You can't jump the shark unless you have a human Fonzie on the water skis jumping the shark. I don't know how else we get there without the Fonz. Um. <laughs> but actually, you know, that is the point of the art of the interview that I had. I recently sat down with Matt Cohen and Christian Boylston. There are two people that work with Loyal, and a lot of people know who Loyal is. They actually work very much on the back end of their artificial intelligence machine learning platform, we sat down and had a really good conversation about not only the history of AI and kind of how it evolved to meet business needs, but actually had a really pragmatic view of how we in the healthcare setting could start to leverage this the right way, right? And not get scared by the fact that our jobs are going to be taken over and you know this creepy AI is going to come into play. After this break, we're going to listen to that interview, and then Reed and I will be back to close out the show. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All 
All right, welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to talk to two experts, not just one, two. So for those of you listening in, this is a, a, a twofer interview today. And I'm talking with two really smart people over at Loyal, and that is Matt Cohen and Christian Boylston. Matt and Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. This is a really interesting topic, but before we jump in, I'd love for you both to kind of introduce yourselves to our audience, let them know a little bit about you, and also a little bit about the company you work with, Loyal. Matt, do you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm Matt Cohen. I'm the director of AI at Loyal. I've been at Loyal for about five and a half years. So I've, I've done a lot of work kind of building up the, uh, the AI machine learning foundations from the ground up. And I went to Georgia Tech for college and studied electrical engineering, but ended up kind of weaving my way into the, the machine learning AI space over undergraduate and graduate courses and uh, internships and, and work experience. That's awesome. I don't believe like at the time that you went to school, there probably wasn't a degree around AI and machine learning, right? I'm not sure if there is now, but uh, but back then it probably wasn't. So that's interesting how you found your way into that. Christian, why don't you uh, share with people your background as well? Yeah, um, I can answer the last thing you just said. Uh, they, they did in fact have a degree in it now and I, I did get it. I, I'm, I'm Christian. I'm a machine learning engineer here at Loyal. I also went to Georgia Tech like Matt. I did my undergrad and master's in computer science, uh, focusing specifically on artificial intelligence and uh, theoretical computing. I think it's really crazy that nowadays that they have that as a degree. Back when I went to school, computer engineering was just pretty much as much as you could do. But wow, it's just crazy. But you know, I kind of I think it kind of speaks to the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is AI and machine learning. When I you know, listen to the news and inevitably the tech segment of whatever the news is or looking online, AI and machine learning is like kind of all over the place now. It's what they call jump the shark, if you guys get that reference, right? It's like everywhere. And recent stories and news seem to imply that AI is just like going to take over everything. And I think today we want to maybe realign expectations. But I'll start with that. Matt, do you think AI is going to take over everybody's jobs and we can all, you know, do something else? I don't think so anytime soon. I think, I hope not. I'm, I'm not really much for the, the idea of it fully replacing. I think it's, it's an, a tool to aid people in their work. You know, data-driven efforts, a lot of workflow optimization, assist along the way. I know that recently ChatGPT has kind of been the big, the big thing, and that's, you know, putting the question if college admission papers and, you know, content creation is going to be completely uh, re- replaced by, by uh, AI and machine learning. But I'm, I'm not firmly of that stance. Um, I do think that things will, you know, could be improved by the usage of AI going forward. And then, you know, way down along the lines in the future, maybe it gets even more sophisticated, but I, I don't see it in our lifetime being a complete takeover game changer. Okay, so we don't have to worry about AI like taking entrance college entrance exams and passing or actually I, I heard a recent news story it said they got a C plus. So just barely passed, I guess. Um, <laughs> I'm also hearing about it, Christian, in taking over the artistry world too. I mean, there is a lot of swirl and hubbub about artificial intelligence and machine learning. What's your perspective on that? I think there's a lot of reasons to be worried, but sometimes not for the reasons that people may think. 
I think sort of historically, the idea of artificial intelligence is sort of trying to recreate something on par with the human mind. And most of the advances that you've seen in uh, what we call AI are mostly just deep learning, which at a high level is just sort of mathematical function approximation. Now that might be like a little technical sounding, but the idea is taking some data points where you have some input and some output and trying to learn the relationship between them. So like if you can imagine in, I don't know, maybe third grade where you had some some plots on a point and you drew a little line through it, you'd say that that's some approximation of the relationship between those two things. What we're doing is that, but at a, a, a far more complicated level. That has a lot of implications in terms of you know, creating business value and changing the ways in which companies operate. But, you know, it's not going to be Skynet or Terminator. That's not really. <laughs> oh, well, that's good to know, right? I was thinking, I think, you know, many of us think about that. What is that term where, you know, machines start to think more than humans? The singularity. Right. So we're, you're saying, you're, you're rest assuring we're, we're a little far off from the singularity. Is that right? We, we may not. We, I mean, as we're currently moving, some people think that we're moving in a direction where you're never going to see that. We're sort of optimizing towards a local optimum, not the not the global one, which could have a lot of uses, but it may not be what people think it is. Interesting. Okay. I think for us to kind of go deeper into this, it might behoove us to kind of take a step back and talk about how we've seen AI growing and evolving over the years, because AI just didn't suddenly show up, right? It's been going on for years, probably in ways that we didn't even know about. I, I even heard that, like, an, I read somewhere, may have been Twitter, that Clippy, remember Microsoft Clippy was like an earlier version of AI. Christian, tell us a little bit about how AI and machine learning have evolved over the years. To be fair, I don't have a degree in AI history, but I have read some textbooks that say some things. So I think if we go back pretty far, one of the really seminal moments for the field where it first sort of came into its own was the the Dartmouth Conference, which I believe is in 1955. It was in a summer and they just sort of got together all these scientists from disparate areas and thought they were going to solve artificial intelligence over the summer. The field sort of started with a lot of hubris and we've sort of been humbled a lot over time. One of the, I guess, early advances that people saw was, was the Mark I perceptron, which was the first idea of an artificial neuron. There was sort of a, a logician and um, I believe a neurophysiologist in the 40s had created this concept of an artificial neuron where it takes some inputs and, you know, fires or doesn't fire. Maybe like a decade and a half later, uh, a scientist by the name of Frank Rosenblatt created this device called the Mark I perceptron, which could sort of recognize basic objects. And the, the idea was that you could sort of change the way in which the neurons fired to be able to see or not see certain objects. And it had some degree of success and got people really excited about the the prospects for artificial intelligence. But later on in in the 60s, there was a a famous scientist, some people might have heard of, Marvin Minsky. He was was at MIT. And he wrote this book called Perceptrons, which is what the artificial neurons were called. And he proved in the book that with a single layer of these perceptrons, you couldn't approximate really basic functions. So what does that mean? Uh, A specific example is it couldn't approximate this function called XOR, which means exclusive OR. So if I say, do you want an apple or a banana? It's sort of assumed that that's exclusive. You don't get both. But in mathematics, you can have both and it still counts as OR. It couldn't learn this really basic function. So a lot of people 
were pretty disillusioned. They decided, you know, AI is not going anywhere. This is kind of a waste of time. And that started what's known as the, the first AI winter is when people just didn't want anything to do with artificial intelligence. They were like, this stuff isn't going anywhere. No funding. If you tried to do artificial intelligence research at your lab, there would be fairly little funding for that. Eventually, that sort of changed in the 80s with something called the universal approximation theorem. What that theorem sort of stated was that any function uh, can be approximated by a sufficiently deep neural network. They later showed it could also be sufficiently wide, but that basically showed that you could guess any function. If you could frame your problem as some input and output, a neural network could approximate it. So people became interested in it again. The problem was that we didn't really have the computational power to make these things efficient. So uh, yeah. um, it ended up being the case that people tried applying it to the stuff, but it was just too slow and didn't work particularly well. So you had this mathematically very plausible way of, of solving problems, but it just wasn't efficient. Once again, people became disinterested in artificial intelligence, and that began the second AI winter. And then it sort of started to thaw a little bit outside of that in the early 2000s. But really kind of a seminal moment for the field was in 2012 with a, a neural architecture called AlexNet. Because neural, neural architectures have been around a long time, but they just didn't practically solve any problems because they were just too inefficient. And in this case, a I believe a PhD student under Jeffrey Hinton at University of Toronto was in this competition where they were trying to classify images saying like, is this a dog or is this a, you know, Coke can or whatever. There was labels and there was pictures and you had to make some sort of model that was going to guess, uh, given some picture, what label it belonged to. And the person who was doing it, Alex, he discovered that you can train these neural networks on graphical processors. He figured out that a lot of these operations can be easily like done in parallel. So he figured out that he could efficiently train a model doing this. And that was in 2012. And this model kind of blew a lot of the others away and showed people like, oh, we can actually do this. And ever since then, it's just been more and more of that deeper neural networks, bigger, finding better hardware. But it's, it's all been about deep learning. If you've seen anything that's impressive, it's probably deep learning. Okay. But so the way you describe that, it's interesting too, Christian. I like that. There's been a lot of like business-related applications that started to evolve out of it. That's about the time where I started to hear about Google experimenting a little bit. Well, maybe that's like the, the you know, the 2010s or that, so to speak. IBM's, you know, Watson, that was a big news, et cetera. Now let's flash forward to today, right? Now we have these like these things that people are just like going to, like chat GPT and even doing like AI to build artwork. Is that what everything's been leading up to? I don't think so. I, I do agree that it feels a bit like a party trick. I guess it, it's worth mentioning that what Christian was saying, I guess it's very revealing how AI and, and machine learning, they're, they're kind of two distinct different things. AI is this, you know, more of the idea of like general intelligence, you know, of this being able to, to solve lots of different problems simultaneously. And machine learning and deep learning is more like small task specific. So we have these things that are really uh, sophisticated for these really, you know, specific tasks. So if it's Dolly, it's generating an image from input text, which it is conceptually very, very uh, impressive. But if you look at some of the results, it's, you know, it's it's still abstract. It's bizarre. And then ChatGPT is very sophisticated. It's a simple, you know, premise. Give it an input prompt, and it responds. It answers questions. It generates code. 
it's still a really tightly defined task. You know, it's got a long ways to go before it's actually useful in in greater context. It's its accuracy is it's it's well known that it's not necessarily generating plausible answers. A lot of it's incorrect. It's good at really constrained tasks, but natural language is a very very unconstrained task. So it, it's got a ways to go in in a lot of those regards. But machine learning is it's interesting. It's it's been around for a little while. Uh, Christian and I have talked a, a little bit about how a lot of the things that are lower stakes is where you see it produced at larger scale. So if it's something like Spotify that's recommending songs to you, the, the risk is pretty low. It's, it's you know, if you don't like the song, you might let them know, you might give it a thumbs down or you might skip the song. That might be the extent of it. And things like Netflix, you know, recommending a lot of these recommendation systems that are leveraging some of this technology behind the scenes. You do have certain places that have made it to scale things like, you know, chat GPT, if you want to apply that in the healthcare space, that, that gets a little, a little questionable because you really have to worry about there's, there's a lot more at risk there. A lot of AI machine learning types of work in things like healthcare specifically, you know, helping optimize different workflows, um, you know, automate tasks, not trying to, you know, replace people, but trying to uh, improve the efficiency of, of different things. And we've even seen machine learning algorithms that can, you know, diagnose cancer. But uh, those are, again, that's higher, that's much higher risk. That's harder to adopt. But at Loyal, we we want to help people find the right care. So we can apply machine learning and AI to try to, try to drive people in the right direction when they're finding a provider that can satisfy the specific needs or, uh, you know, performing searches across a wide variety of different healthcare-related inputs it can be really powerful for, you know, I, I, I think of it usually as tasks, like task-specific types of things. And if you can define the task, if you can define the inputs and the outputs, then you can often solve a lot of problems. I'm starting to think of it as like almost, there's two, and correct me if I'm wrong, two different ways, two different major applications where you could take AI and machine learning. The big, broad, macro level, right? Well, that's where you're bringing in millions of radiology images together and having them like look at it all and synthesize that and finding trends and like millions of data points. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's a hyperbolic, but you know, like a lot of data to kind of define trends. And that's where I hear a lot about in terms of research and, and other ways that that AI and machine learning have been applied. And then to what you're describing just now, Matt is it seems like on a on a micro level, right? For these little major things, like I'm trying to navigate through to find the right doctor for me, or or, or the Netflix recommendation, right? Um, is that a fair way to kind of look at it? I'll disagree a little bit. I'll say that it's it's a I would say it's more continuous than that. It's a general framework where it's not either big or small. It's anything that you can define in terms of input and output can be thought of a machine learning problem. And that's why we see so many diverse things. It's it's all a piece of like the same pie, you know, like a self-driving car, you're taking in, you know, pixels from the cameras, uh, you know, readings from LIDAR sensors and other stuff. And then on the output, you're predicting, you know, the angle of the steering wheel, the degree to which the brake or the gas is pressed. So you're predicting three numbers at the end. Um, if you're doing like a recommendation system, you're predicting what's the most likely thing that someone's going to click on anything that you can sort of frame as a prediction problem can be tackled with machine learning. And that's sort of like the thing people should think about. This is extremely general and broadly applicable to almost everything. 
So I think when people narrowly focus on like chat GPT or Dolly or something like that, it's like, those are cool. And they are kind of like party tricks, but you know, we're diagnosing cancer better than radiologists now, (laughs) you know, that's a big deal. We're finding new ways to, I guess, recreate the 3d structure of, of proteins and find breakthroughs and cancer treatments and things like that through it. It's a lot more continuous is the way I would think of it. I think Christian mentioned this idea of like framework, how there's a kind of a general framework that you can build off of. And he mentioned like studying things like protein folding or uh, drug discovery. It's interesting because some of these same technologies that are being used to create chat GPT, as well as to discover drugs that can help cure different ailments. They actually, a lot of these leverage the, the same AI or machine learning framework or technology, the same same infrastructure behind the scenes can be applied to both of those problems, as well as you can leverage that for the review of images, you know, screening images for whatever you're trying to discover about an x-ray or, or imagery. It's, it's, it's a framework. And so it, it kind of lends itself to this, this continuum in, in that sense. I'd love to hear about like, some of those use cases, how you're seeing AI being used at, you know, in your space when you're working with your hospital clients. I'd mentioned it before this, you know, this idea of finding the right care. We, we have a, a lot of different ways in which we can approach this. And, and that's a lot of the work that we do is, is from a digital front door perspective, we're, we're trying to make the digital front door more accessible. We're trying to leverage AI machine learning to help aid people along the steps, along the process, kind of a you know, continuum of, of how all these pieces come together, whether it's I'm trying to find the right care. So being able to perhaps process a lot of text reviews in bulk and be able to point people in the right direction based on star ratings or you know, contextual information about what people have said in the past. And be able to, you know, first step is just to say, you know, who is the right, the right provider for me? And, or just to say, you know, perhaps people just want to know, like, what, what, what do I think is wrong with me? I, I have some symptoms, you know, things like symptom checkers often leverage some, some level of, of AI to, to help, you know, push you along the direction to be able to say, okay, now that I know this information, let me find the right care. Let me find the right provider. And then behind the scenes, you know, a lot of companies might be trying to optimize what I've mentioned, optimizing workflows. So if your health system, you often want people to to make it in you know it's there's always this yeah, a business element but there's also a kind of a value-based care element or, or population health where you're trying to to make sure that the population is healthy and it's they're able to to make it in so you might try to optimize appointment reminders to make sure that people are reminded in such a way that either they're uh, reminded so that they make it or if not you know that spot might be filled by someone else keep keep the population at whole healthy you know, even things behind the scenes like providers taking notes, you know, perhaps we would, you know, prefer, this isn't loyal specific, but definitely in the healthcare space, you know, we might want to optimize uh, provider's day. So a lot of technology around things like speech to text to, to help with uh, transcribing notes or, or things like that are, are definitely in, in, the, uh, in the space or, you know, helping people fill out pre-registration forms before, you know, before they ever even make it in. There are so many steps along the way. And that's part of the thing that I'm excited about is 
coming from a very different background, but being in it now for a little over five years, I get to learn all these nuanced pieces that go into healthcare and especially healthcare from different angles, you know, one being our side, the digital side. But at the end of the day, the ultimate goal is trying to inform people about things that can keep them healthy or drive them in the right direction to to find uh, a good fitting provider or specialist. You know, it's interesting as you describe that, Matt, um, it's almost like you're outlining this this these scenarios where AI machine learning can actually not only solve business problems, but uh, dare I say it, like almost infuse it with a little bit of humanity, right? To make it easier for people to do things, which it's kind of weird. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not advocating for the singularity, Christian, not at all, but it almost sounds like this is a, a very interesting application when we talk about healthcare. Yeah, I think it's worth like like going back to more the the generality of it. There's a great book by a couple economists. I don't I think they're at University of Toronto, but it's called Prediction Machines. And if somebody's more into like the economic case for I'm going to say deep learning because we're mostly talking about deep learning. It's a great book because it sort of takes the economic angle of how specifically these deep learning methods are going to change things economically. And they think of it in terms of like prediction as a commodity. The idea is that having sufficient deep learning or machine learning capabilities is going to make prediction cheaper, right? Like you can predict whether a customer is going to churn, what uh, potential patients are going to have some disease or something to that extent. Anything that you can frame as a prediction problem, you can get an answer to. And by automating that process through machine learning, you're able to make prediction inexpensive. And an easier way to think of that through previous analogies is um, like computers made arithmetic inexpensive. So you're able now to like, you don't have to like hire somebody to, you know, write out and compute stuff or do calculations. And we framed a lot of different problems as computational problems. Like you could think of um, photography as one that used to be something where you would do chemically, you would put in the dark room and do all that stuff. But um, you could represent that arithmetically as ones and zeros and finding new ways to use this increasingly cheap commodity is sort of how this is going to change the game. Because prediction is really important in the decision-making process. So having the ability to have good predictions is going to allow you to make better business decisions. And I think that's the thing that people should think about. Um, Investing in the ability to make cheap prediction is going to be very helpful for long-term decision-making. We started this conversation and I didn't realize that we'd go so technically deep, but also so profoundly applicable to what we're working on. This has been such a great conversation, Matt and Christian. I really appreciate you guys spending a little time kind of helping to educate me, bringing me up to speed. And also you really have reframed my perspective on the applications of machine learning, AI, and now Christian, I'm going to start saying deep learning to the work that we're doing uh, ultimately and the problems that we're trying to solve as we're working in healthcare. You know, before I let you guys go, I think a lot of people listening in may want to connect with you guys online. Would you mind uh, sharing uh, ways that they can reach out to you? Matt, why don't you start first? Yeah, you could find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way. Um, just Matt Cohen, um, C-O-H-E-N is the last name. Uh, that's probably the easiest way. How about you, Christian? I, I am a fairly private person, but if you are <laughs> so deeply compelled, you can email me at christian at loyalhelp.com. 
There you go. And also loyalhealth.com, right? Ultimately, that's where people should go to learn a little bit more about what you guys are doing in your organization. Guys, thanks for jumping on um, and and talking, sharing a little bit with our audience. It's been a really great conversation. Really appreciated your insights. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Glad to do it. Yeah, thanks for having us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Special thanks to Matt Christian for coming on the show. Certainly appreciate their time, energy, work in this space. It's always uh, good to talk to subject matter experts. And so really cool to have them on. Mm-hmm. All right. Touchpoint.health is the website. Uh, again, sign up for the TPS report while you're there. Five articles to start your week. A couple of links to industry conferences. Chris, you and I are actually going to be here in a short few months. We will be in Austin, Texas at the Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit doing stuff so would love to love to know if you're going to be there reach out let us know we'd love to love to connect certainly absolutely one of the stuff we're going to do is we're going to record a live episode of the podcast there so if you're interested in either joining that uh, panel discussion like we normally do or just attending and listening in reach out to us let us know we're going to have a dedicated room and everything so we're looking forward to it all right uh what do you got for a recommendation today Reed, I'm going to recommend something that seems a little bit more analog, less digital, but it is kind of digital in nature. Let me explain. We pulled the plug a long time ago, right? We're cord cutters with our web, with, and we're streaming all of our stuff through uh, various different streaming platforms, etc. But uh, one of the things my wife uh, said to me, um, I guess a week ago, she said, of all of our streaming platforms, we can't get the Super Bowl through live TV. It's just not an option for us. And so what we did is we did some research and we found a amplified HD digital TV antenna that we can hook up to our television. It's a flat signal booster, basically. Okay. And you can get on-air TV, I guess, basically live TV. The one we got is the one Bion amplified HD digital TV antenna, and it supports 4K 180p. All the older TVs and up to the newest TVs can be connected through to this. On Amazon, it's having a flash sale right now. I guess we're not the only ones looking to do this, right? It's like 60% off the list price right now. It's like under 20 bucks to get one of these things. Ordered it off of Amazon, got it in within that day it was delivered when we ordered it. And so we're going to hook it up. So now we can watch the Super Bowl live. So for those of you that maybe are struggling and maybe you just want to go back the old school way, Get yourself one of these amplified uh, digital TV antennas so you can actually get real-life TV. Coming full circle, my friend. We're back to the rabbit ears. Back to the rabbit ears. Get your tinfoil out. <laughs> I'm going to recommend one thing, but there's several options here. So anyway, I was uh, this week, uh, was in, uh, of course, live here in Nashville, work here in Nashville, was downtown for uh, for a telehealth conference that happened to be here in Nashville. 
And uh, it was in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And uh, in that same building, kind of down the bottom, there's a place called Hatch Show Print. Uh, Hatchshowprint.com. And they're the ones that have made posters for all the musical acts from all the years, right? So they're they're a letterpress print and design shop that's been around since 1879. Mm. And so they make all these little posters, you know, for different uh, concerts and venues and, and all that stuff through the years. So they've done all the stuff with like, you know, Elvis and Johnny Cash and all these famous performances. You know, they made the posters that people hung around town. So they're still around today. It's an old school press. It's really fascinating. And so if you're here in Nashville, I know Vive, which is part of Health, is coming up and it's here in Nashville. If you're coming to town, be sure to check it out. You can actually visit them and like watch. You can kind of watch through the windows, them doing uh, you know the production side of the thing. But you can also take a tour. Uh, you can buy stuff. They have a you know an entire uh, shop there where you can get like greeting cards. But it's a really cool print. Uh, based, uh, just kind of old school to your point, analog. And you can, uh, you know, if you're interested, maybe you have an event coming up, you know, at your company, corporation, um, uh, organization, but they do custom. Um, so you can actually get these really cool posters done. Like if you're having an annual conference or something like that, that is somewhat of a collector's item. Right. And, um, wow, it's not that's digital. cool. Um, but it's really cool. So check out their website, hatchshowprint.com. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff. You can book a tour there, learn more, look through their gallery, see different things that they've done and uh, learn more about them. It's awesome. What a great recommendation. I'm going to have to check them out. Might have to come down to Nashville and visit you, Reed, and you can take me on a tour. There you go. There you go. All right, folks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us this week. Uh, We certainly appreciate it. Hope you'll find your way back next week for a new episode. You never know what may come, but if you've got an idea of who we should talk to, what we should talk about, et cetera, reach out. LinkedIn is probably the best way to track us down and have a conversation about it. We'd love to hear from you. And again, if you're going to be in Austin for HMPS, let us know that as well. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.